Welcome to the Vision Church Podcast. We're so thankful that you're taking some time today to listen. We pray that this week's message challenges you to press in deeper with your pursuit of Christ. Our mission at Vision Church is to go and make disciples. You can help us in this mission by rating this podcast and sharing it with the world via social media. We want to reach the lost by raising up the found. Thank you again for tuning in today and enjoy the message. Today we're continuing our series, Spirit and Truth, Acts chapter 16, verse 16. One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul was so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Her master's hope of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews. They shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for Romans to practice. Verse 22, a mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas and the city officials ordered them to be stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten and they were thrown into prison. The jailer ordered to make sure that they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors swing wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted, stop, don't kill yourself. We're still here. The jailer called for the lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. Can we give God praise for that text? Acts 16 is magnificent. Come on, somebody. It's beautiful. Truly it is. Pray with me now one more time. Lord, we love you so much. We're so incredibly grateful. Thank you for the word of God. We believe that it is God-breathed and inspired. We believe that it is for correction, rebuke, for the edification of the saints. I pray that today you would wash us in your word. Touch every heart, every life, every person, right where they are. Be strong in my weakness and be glorified. And may I forever be hidden behind the message of the cross. It's in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. So just to give you a little context here into Acts 16, so we all start on the same page. 
Uh, this is an incredible text where we see Paul on his mission to advance and establish the New Testament church all throughout the Gentile world. As he does, he and Silas go down to pray one afternoon and they encounter a woman with a spirit of divination. The King James Version says a spirit of divination. In other words, she was a fortune teller. She practiced witchcraft, if you will, and she was able by a spirit of darkness to foretell the future events. As this young girl encountered Paul and Silas in the power of the gospel, she began to follow them everywhere that their ministry took them. And she soon became a distraction and she would shout out in the middle of the meeting, these are men of the most high God and they come to show you the way of salvation. Now at first glance, that sounds like she's speaking the truth. But how many of you know the enemy speaks 90% truth so that he can plant a lie and deception? Satan does not bring out 100% falsity or a lie. He gives you the majority truth and then just he subtly deceives us. That's what he did in the garden and that's how he still to this day deceives the world. Paul, hearing her say these things, he rebukes her in the name of the Lord Jesus. She is delivered instantly and we see her being delivered. And part of the reason that this was such a distraction is not only was she interrupting the meeting and putting the attention on her instead of God, but she also made the focus the men rather than the ministry. She said, look at the men. They are of the most high God and they bring you salvation. How many of you know it's not about men? We're vessels, tools, instruments in the hands of God Almighty. All praise, all glory and adoration belongs to God Almighty. Don't ever fall into man worship. Let's always praise Jesus. I'm just an unworthy vessel doing my job. I at least deserve one amen, but there we go. <laughs> so I mean, my wife would amen that one. He's an unworthy vessel, all right. So, um, and by the way, when we hear this text, we think that, you know, a spirit of divination and this witchcraft stuff, like that is for the ancient world. Well, it's not prevalent today, but I would caution you that it actually is still at work in the earth today. The spirit of divination and demonic forces still influence and operate in the world that you live in. It just doesn't look the way you think it does. Sometimes it presents itself as a harmless, good thing. I want to just call out a few things. Fortune tellers, horoscopes, crystals, tarot cards, and new age mythology all are empowered by spiritual darkness. Every single piece of it. You say, oh, well, there's some good that comes from it. There's some truth that comes from it. Remember, Satan will give you 90% truth and then he'll lead you to deception. Isaiah chapter eight, verse 19 says this. Someone may say to you, let's ask mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead with their whisperings and mutterings, they will tell you what to do. But shouldn't people ask God for guidance? Should the living seek guidance from the dead? The prophet Isaiah here is calling out this same attitude back in his day. And he's saying, you are God's people. You don't need to seek a tarot card or a fortune teller to tell you the future. The light does not consult the darkness. We can come boldly before the throne of grace in our time of need. And we come straight to the father. We do not participate in the confusion and the darkness of this world. All right. We do not have anything to do with it. 
Now, what I wanna do over the next few moments is we're gonna go right through this text that I just shared with you today. And the first point that I wanna extract is life is not fair. Look at your neighbor with some attitude and tell them like they don't know, life isn't fair. This is really important and it truly is. You might remember that Paul and Silas, they were on a missionary journey. They were there to plant churches in the Gentile world. They cast an evil spirit out of this little girl. And as they do so, this innocent, harmless, beautiful act now has incited a mob who turns on them. These men are beaten violently. Scripture says severely beaten with rods, lacerations across their back, bleeding, exposed in open wounds. Then they're shackled and put into a prison, the inner dungeon at that. Scripture says that their feet were clamped in stocks. And if you don't know what that means, that means that they were seated and two uh, large pieces of lumber were sandwiched in between their legs, clamping them to where they could not move. They were physically restrained, not just by the stocks of their feet, but the chains that shackled their hands. These men were innocent. They had done nothing wrong. The punishment did not fit the crime. This was not fair. The truth is they were there on a good mission, but they were treated unjustly and unfairly. It's important that we recognize that life is not always fair because one of the greatest deceptions that the enemy uses to silence our worship is a victim mentality. Poor me, poor you, can you believe this happened to me? And let's be honest, I'm gonna be honest. If I was like Paul and Silas, shackled, beaten, and I was in that jail cell and I couldn't get to Chick-fil-A, I would be like, Lord, what is going on here? Now, I've been out here trying to do your work. I know you guys are way holier than I am. Okay, but I would have complained. I would have been like, what is going on here? All right? Um, but the reality is we, every time we're a victim, our focus shifts from God to ourselves and it truly silences our praise. Life is not fair. And the sooner you realize that, the sooner you can get over the things that weigh you down and you can move forward with God's purpose in your life. The scripture says in Matthew chapter five that he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Somebody needs to hear me today that your circumstances are not an indication of God's approval or disapproval of your life. Please hear me. I've talked to so many people that they're living a life that is completely contrary to scripture. They're living a life in deliberate sin, but they look at their life and they say, well, I'm blessed. My life is going well. So surely God is pleased with me and surely God understands my life because my circumstances are good. Be careful that you don't lull yourself into self-deception. Positive circumstances are not an indication of God's favor and approval on your life. And the contrary is also true. Just because you got a bad diagnosis, just because you're walking through a difficult season in your life is not the sign that God has abandoned you or is judging you. You have to realize that your circumstances are not always linked to your approval or disapproval in the eyes of God. Scripture says that it rains on the just and the unjust alike. Many of us, when we get saved and we gave our life to Christ, we expected our life to be 75 and sunny from that day forward. No more problems, no more trouble. Everything is going to be perfect. 
then you made it about three hours in. (laughs) The truth is, life is not always fair. In fact, the Bible is full of people who were innocent and suffered unjustly. You remember Job? The first book chronologically in the Bible was about a man named Job, not Job. (laughs) The book of Job is about a man who was innocent, yet he suffered cruel hardship. But really, the book of Job is not about a man. It's pointing forward, foreshadowing Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was the ultimate, innocent, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, who would take on the sin of the world. For he who knew no sin became our sin on the cross, that you and I might be called the righteousness of God through him. The Bible is all about the innocent suffering unjustly. It truly is. We see this not only in the book of Job, we see it in the life of Joseph. And even in the New Testament, Jesus taught the parable of the talents. One servant got five, one got two, and one got one. And everybody gets mad for the guy, we feel bad for the guy with one. But even a good master does not give equally. Life is not fair, all right? And the sooner that we understand that, that we are not an exception to that rule, the faster we can turn our eyes to worship. Please hear me. If you remain a victim, oh, I'm so poor me, poor me. You will never praise God. You will never worship him like you were intended to. And one of the lies of the enemy is to get you so victimized in your own eyes that you fail to give God the praise that he deserves. Life isn't fair. It won't be fair till we stand on the day of judgment. But then the Lord of all the earth will do what is right. And until then, we'll praise him in every circumstance. One of my favorite things about Paul and Silas here is that nothing could stop their praise. Nothing could stop their praise. Let me go one step deeper really quickly. People often say this, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? Have you ever wondered that? You ready for the biblical answer? because I'm about to offend everybody. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, according to the scripture, no one is good. Romans chapter three says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No one is truly seeking after God and no one is truly good in and of themselves. So none of us deserve the good things. What we should say is, thank God for your mercy. I deserve your wrath. I deserve your judgment. But instead, your mercy triumphs over judgment. So instead of being a victim, let us follow the example of Paul and Silas and say, no matter what comes my way, whether life is fair or it isn't, I will praise you and I will worship you anyway. And nothing will stop my praise. There is always a reason to praise him. If the Lord never does another thing for you, he's already done more than enough for us to praise him and worship him for the rest of our life. He sent his only son, born of a virgin, to die on a rugged cross for you. God Almighty gave his very best when he gave his son for you and I. What more does God need to do for you to decide it's time to praise him? If he never does another thing for you, if he never answers another prayer you pray, you still have a reason to worship and bless his mighty name. You still have a reason to praise. Another 
lesson that I want to draw out of this text today is that sometimes you have to encourage yourself in the Lord. Look at your other neighbor, the one you've been ignoring and say, encourage yourself in the Lord. Paul and Silas sat shackled in stocks and in chains. The people they were ministering to forgot all about them. Based on their circumstances, there was no external reason to rejoice. There was no reason to be encouraged. Everybody that had been around them had forsaken them now. And when everybody else is gone and there's no reason externally to praise, there's gonna come a moment in all of our lives where we have to encourage ourselves in the Lord. Pastor T's not gonna be there. Pastor Brett's not gonna be there. Mama, grandmama's not gonna be there. There's gonna be a moment in your life that you have to find the courage to encourage yourself in the Lord. This is best illustrated in 1 Samuel chapter 30 in the life of David who wrote the book of Psalms. Listen to this, it's incredible. 1 Samuel 30 verse four. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and they wept till they had no more power to weep. The King James Version says that they cried until they could cry no more. These were grown men, warriors, soldiers, by the way. Verse five, and David's two wives were taken captives. I don't recommend that. (laughs) Some of you are slow. Uh, Verse six, and David was greatly distressed and the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. The context here of 1 Samuel 30 is David and his soldiers had been out assisting the Philistines in battle. And when they came home to the village of Ziklag, they saw smoke billowing from the horizon. Their village was razed to the ground. Everything they had, all their possessions stolen, their wives and children taken captives. And the men along with David cried until they could cry no more. And then their remorse turned to anger toward David. And the Bible says that from the ashes of Ziklag, when there was no reason externally to praise God, there was no reason externally to worship. Even his own men now turn against him and talk of stoning him. The Bible says something profound that David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how David encouraged himself but it doesn't have to because we know David was a worshiper. David from the ashes of Ziklag worshiped his way out. He began to praise God and he found strength and the Lord revived his soul as he began to worship right from where he is. I don't know what you're walking through today, a dark night, a low valley, and you may feel alone. And based on your circumstances, you can't find an external physical reason to praise. I want to challenge you. Praise him anyway. Worship him from the prison, from the jail cell, from the ashes of Ziklag. Worship him from right there and you will find courage and strength supernaturally from the Lord your God. I wish I'd get a witness in here who believes what I'm saying today. Some believers that you've worshiped through some dark nights and you found that joy comes in the morning. David lost everything and he worshiped his way out. Scripture says that he found strength 
and courage and even joy in the, in the praise and the worship of God. Do you realize that when you worship God, you put the focus on him? When you complain and you worry and you're anxious, you put the focus on your troubles. Worship, although simple in nature, it is powerful in result because as we magnify the Lord, as we magnify his character, as we think on his holiness, his goodness, his mercy, as we praise him and make him the focus, if he's my focus, my fear cannot be. If he's my focus, my anxiety cannot be. If he's my focus, my trouble can't be. And as I magnify the Lord, my troubles look smaller and smaller and grow dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, fear and anxiety and worrying does nothing for you other than magnify your own problems. When have you ever worried so much that things got better? Things you've never heard somebody say, man, I'm so glad I worried for three years because now it happened. And half the stuff y'all worrying about is never going to come to fruition anyway. We worry about nothing. We pray about everything. And from the ashes of Ziklag, from the prison, we praise. Our life is marked by his presence. And as we worship him and as we praise him, he becomes greater. Our problems become smaller. And instead of comparing our troubles to ourselves, we compare our troubles to his greatness. And as we look at his glory, his power, and we see from an eternal perspective, the things that occupy our time and our worries today, they become nothing but the dust at our feet in his presence. Don't let a victim mindset silence your praise. Refuse to be a victim today. The next thing I want to show you really quickly is that joy and peace come from within, not from around you. The world tells you all you need is a little retail therapy to get over him. <laughs> all the ladies said amen, right? Amazon.com. Y'all ordering so much stuff, you forgot what you bought. It's like Christmas every day at my house. I got so many boxes, I don't even know what to do with this. Just kidding, my wife's actually really good. It's, sometimes it's me. Okay, <laughs> so anyway, but um, you know, the world says if you just buy that house, you buy that car, you have a new relationship, if you just do these external things, you'll find joy and you'll find peace. But the reality is the world overpromises and underdelivers. Joy and peace will never be found by things external. Solomon, one of the wisest and wealthiest men to ever live, according to scripture, wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter two this. I said to myself, come on, let's give pleasure a try. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. Skip down with me to verse 10. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself of no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for my labors. But as I looked at everything I'd worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Solomon built the finest homes, the finest vineyards. He had chariots. He had everything of the day, all the splendor the world could offer. And he said that it was all empty. It was all meaningless. It brought me joy for a moment, but it was fleeting. There's nothing external that can truly satisfy the human heart. But Paul and Silas and David realized that joy doesn't come from the world. 
It comes from his Holy Spirit within me. And if I have the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead alive in me, I can be content in every circumstance, whether I'm in chains or whether I'm free, whether I have all that I need or not. If I have him, I have everything I'll ever need in the presence of the Lord. Joy and peace comes from your creator, not from the things created. You were created with a void so large, only God himself can satisfy it. You can spend your days trying to lavish and hoard up the things of the world, but I got to tell you, it will leave you empty. It'll leave you emptier than how it found you. By the way, Psalm 16, verse 11 says, thou will show me the path of life and in thy presence is the fullness of joy. I'm about to take a lap up in here. Do you believe Psalm 16? In your presence, oh God, there is the fullness of joy. If you really believe it, you'll worship God no matter what you're facing. If you really believe that joy is in his presence, you'll worship him through the ashes and through the imprisonment. No matter what life brings your way, you got to realize that joy and strength come from his presence. The fullness of joy is in his presence. Moving on to verse 25 of Acts 16, the scripture tells us that the world is watching. Tell your neighbor, the world is watching. At midnight, as Paul and Silas began to pray and began to worship, the world and the prisoners leaned in. The world is watching your life, whether you realize it or not. And anybody can be happy and have peace when life is good, but when things are unjust and when things are not fair and when life is at its darkest, that's when the world leans in to see who you really are. The truth is the world has a hard exterior and they may criticize your faith, but deep down they are looking for hope. Deep down they're looking for a reason to believe. Deep down they're looking and hoping that you have a purpose and you have something greater than they do. The truth is though, if you respond to trouble the way the world responds to trouble, they see a powerless God and an empty religion. Oh, but when you worship and it doesn't make sense, when you're positive and you have a peace that trans, that, that circumstances, it's over your circumstances. The world leans in and says, man, they got something I don't have. I need this Jesus and greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. I wonder how do you respond in trouble? How do you respond in uncertainty? I want to challenge you to worship because the world is watching. They truly are. They truly are. And by the way, while I'm here, just want to show you something also that's amazing about the world watching. It was their worship and their praise that got the other prisoners' attention. But it was the love that Paul and Silas demonstrated that actually won that jailer to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, your praise, your peace, your joy, that will get the attention of the world, but it's your love for them that will draw them to Christ. You see, in American Christianity, we want to win souls. We want to win our family to Christ. We want to win these people to Christ. But then we don't want to forgive and we don't want to love and we don't want to put them first because those things are sacrificial and cost something. We want to rattle off facts and apologetics and demand people get saved right in front of our eyes. Don't get me wrong. Those things are important. But the most valuable weapon you have in evangelism is the love for the world. 
Look at this again. Watch this text and I hope it comes alive to you. Paul and Silas worship in this jail cell. They praise the Lord and the earth begins to shake. And the prison doors fling open wide and their chains fall off. They had every opportunity to run right out that door and say, I'm out. Thank you, Lord. But they knew the Roman law and they knew that if they were to run, it would cost that jailer, that prison guard, his very life. The Roman law was that if your prisoners escaped under your watch, that you would be put to death. That's why the prison guard, when he saw the jail cell doors had been opened, he took out his own sword and was about to take his life. Paul and Silas cry out, no, no, don't do it. We're all still here. In other words, in that moment, Paul and Silas demonstrated their love for that man over their own comfort, over their own freedom. They put his life ahead of themselves. And because of their love for him, he bowed low on his knees and said, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? You see, it's easy to talk about how the world needs Jesus, but we're called to love them like Jesus loves them. And that means putting their life ahead of your own, considering other people is more important than yourself. I don't know about you, but I probably would have ran through the door. I've been like, yes, I'm free. Thank you, Jesus. But instead, their act of love led him to repentance. The word of God says in the book of Romans that it is his kindness that draws us to repentance. Not your clever arguments, not your judgmental theology, not your legalism. It is your kindness that draws sinners to repentance. Sadly, the church has been known for what we're against and our rules and you know, our do nots, but may we be known for our kindness and our love. And by the way, love does not mean you tolerate whatever somebody wants to do. Love is warning them with genuine sincerity. Love does not enable. It speaks the truth to lead people to redemption. Does this make sense to anybody? It was their love. It was their love for him. The next point here is worship your way out. Look at your neighbor. Help me preach again. Say, worship your way out. This is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. The scripture is showing you that though you may have been bound and though you may have been imprisoned, I want you to realize that as you worship, as you praise God, supernatural things happen while we worship. The truth is the earthquake that took place in Acts 16 was not coincidental. It was not random. No, their worship was the catalyst of this supernatural event taking place. And God moves in miraculous ways when his people praise and worship him. And the truth is, spiritually, we are liberated as we praise and worship him. Don't wait till your life is perfect to praise him. Don't wait till you're over the addiction to praise him. Don't wait till your marriage has worked its problems out to start praising and worshiping him. No, no, no. You see the way to freedom and the way to liberation is to praise him right where you are. As they worship, the prison doors swung open and the chains fell off. This is incredible, church. It's beautiful. When we were talking earlier with the prayer team before the service, 
they brought up this point, and I, thought, I think it was so beautiful. The chains fell off, but they were still in the prison. And this is a picture of your soul. Really, it is. The moment that you got saved and repented of your sin, placing your faith in Christ, immediately in that moment, the power of sin was broken over you. In that moment, you are no longer a slave to sin any longer. Now you are a child of the living God. And scripture gives you a promise that now to every Christian, there is a way of escape in the time of temptation. That promise is not given to the world because the world is still ensnared to their sin. It's still their master. But to you, there's a way of escape. To you, there's a promise that now you don't sin as a believer because you have to. Now you sin as a believer because you want to. And you may still feel like you're in the prison, but you need to hear today that your chains are broken. And all you got to do is worship your way out. You got to walk out of that prison. You, walking out of the prison today might look like deleting her contact. You say, well, I love the Lord, but I just keep going back into temptation. Well, you know what? You've been set free. There's a way out. Your chains are broken, but you got to decide I'm going to walk out of the prison today. Freedom has been afforded to you in the, in the price that Christ paid on Calvary. Scripture is also showing us in this example that we cannot deliver ourselves, but he who the son sets free is free indeed. Paul and Silas could not free themselves from the shackles and the stock that bound them. But as they praised and worshiped the one who could, he indeed set them free. Some of you have relied on Christ to save you, but you're relying on yourself and your own willpower to deliver yourself from the addiction, from the pornography, from the lust, from whatever it is, fill in the blank. You can't save you and you can't deliver you. But the same one who can save you and deliver you from hell is the one who can deliver you from the addictions and the chains of this life. I want to encourage you, praise him, worship him, fill the void of your heart with his presence and get up out of that prison today and start walking after Jesus. We can't deliver ourselves, but he can. And supernatural things happen when we begin to praise do you, let me just help you see what it looks like really quickly because some of you, like, there's a disconnect. It's like, no, I believe he can set me free, but I don't know how. Let me tell you how. The Holy Spirit changes the desires of the human heart. As you praise him, your heart becomes more like him. And as you are filled with his spirit and in his presence, you begin to love what he loves more and more and despise what he despises. For too long, the church has said, quit smoking, drinking, and sleeping around. But really what the church needs to say is, hey, look at Jesus. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he beautiful? Follow him. Live like him. Love like him. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. When we list off the legalism list, the law itself provokes us to sin even more. But if we'll follow Jesus, the closer we get to him, the more we become like him. And the more we become like him, the chains fall off. And one day you'll realize I haven't done that in seven weeks. And I don't even know what happened, but I don't even want it again. I don't want to go back to the way I used to be. That's the spirit of God transforming you right before your eyes. He is able. Anybody believe today that he's able? You believe it? 
Not going to preach much longer, but their love, their, the worship got their attention, but it was their love that brought the world to Jesus. And the jailer knelt down before the feet of Paul and Silas, and he said, what must I do to be saved? First of all, his question is totally wrong. Appreciate the heart. He's missing it. Look what he said. What must I do to be saved? Church, there's nothing you can do to save you. We are saved by grace through faith. His grace alone through faith alone. Your good works cannot save you. The day of judgment will not be, well, let's measure your good works based on your bad. And if you did one more good thing than you did bad thing, you're going to make it. No, I already told you nobody's good. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And one sin is enough to condemn you eternally. One sin is enough to separate us eternally. Just ask Adam and Eve in the garden. One did it. There's nothing you can do. But the good news is Jesus has done it. He has done for you what you could not do. He was perfect, sinless. He fulfilled the law. He died on the cross in your place. He paid your penalty. He took on your debt and shame so that now by faith in him, you are forgiven. Your charges have been dropped. The wrath of God satisfied. There's nothing I can do, but it's what he has done. You believe that today? On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. But I want to I go one step deeper and I'm going to just mess with all of you right now. This jailer said to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? I wonder if the, the server at the restaurant today after church asked you this question, how would you answer? If that family member you've been praying for, if that roommate you've been praying for looked at you today and said, how can I be saved? Would you be ready to respond? Would you be ready to answer? Or would you be like, let me call up Pastor T, Pastor Brett. Okay, here, I got him here. If I can be honest with you, my job is not to be the hero. My job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I can't do all the ministry. I can't be at every hospital. I can't be at every whatever, but you can. You can be there for that person connected to you. If somebody asked you, how would I be saved? Well, how would you respond? Well, don't worry, I'm not gonna ask you. I'm gonna tell you right now. So I would encourage you to write this down. So if you don't take notes now, it'd be a good time. You always look smarter when you pretend to take notes at least. <laughs> listen, to what, listen to what Paul and Silas said to that question. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. People have looked at that and said, but wait, that's too simple. There's, there's got to be more. But he said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Let me, let me explain this really quickly. People have looked at that text and used it as an excuse, some denominations, to not preach repentance. They say, well, he didn't say repent, so we don't need to say repent. Hold time up. The reason Paul and Silas didn't call the jailer to repentance is because he was already repenting. He was already in the fetal position. He's like, help me. What do I need to do to be saved? He was already in a posture of repentance. Okay, so how do I 
lead someone to Christ. Three things, you ready? Three things, write this down. Please write this down. Number one, admit that you are a sinner and repent. I'm gonna repeat it again. Number one is admit that you are a sinner and repent. This is the part of the gospel that we often leave out. And then the world doesn't know why they need Jesus to begin with. Because in the world's eyes, they're a pretty good person. Because we can all find somebody who sins worse than us. And we're like, well, you know, compared to them, I'm good. So, you know, if they're gonna make it, I'm in there. <laughs> so you gotta start with Romans 3. This is why the gospel's offensive. This is why people don't like the preaching of the gospel. This is why people send me hateful emails and leave in my sermons because they don't like to be told that they're not good enough. But the gospel says you're not good enough and I'm not good enough. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, we must admit our sinfulness, our lust, pride, and greed. We must admit it and repent of it. Repent is not remorse. It's not saying, well, I'm sorry. No, it's changing direction. It's like, no, 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 I don't want that anymore. I, I want a new life. So admit your sin and repent of it, okay? The next point is believe that Jesus is the Lord and that he died and rose from the grave. We must believe that Jesus is the Lord, that he died. And by the way, belief is more than intellectual agreement. Belief means that it's trusting wholly relying completely upon him. Real belief is more than just, I intellectually check the box. No, if you really believe it, you'll follow him. James said, faith without action is dead. Those who really believe it will live it. Does this make sense? Admit your sin, repent of it. Number two, believe that Jesus is the Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And number three is we must confess Jesus as the Lord of our life. Scripture says that if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. Admit, believe, confess. You say, well, wait, church, wait, preacher, it should be a little harder than that, shouldn't it? No, the gospel is simple and you should be thankful that it's simple. So simple a child could receive it. You say, but what about baptism and what about communion and what about, you know, all the ordinances of the, of the church? Well, I'm glad you asked. Those things we do in obedience to him because we are saved, not as a prerequisite to be saved. He said, I don't like this. I don't like this preaching. Okay, well, let me just remind you on Golgotha, on the cross, Jesus hung between two criminals and one said, I believe, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, surely this day you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't say, hold up, let's pause and get you baptized real quick. Let's feed him communion. I mean, like, and I'm not trying to, I'm not, listen, I'm not belittling the ordinances of the church. They're important, they're vital. They're important to follow Christ, but that's not what saves you. His grace alone, through faith alone. What you're, what you're implying when you say you need to do more is what you're really saying is that the blood of Jesus isn't enough. Well, you gotta be baptized. We well, gotta stop smoking, drink. What you're really saying is that the blood of Jesus is not enough. And may God have mercy because his blood is enough. Anybody believe today that his blood is enough? There's power in the blood of Jesus. In closing, as the band comes to help me wind this sermon down, the last point is the gospel still 
works. There is power in the good news of Jesus Christ. I want you to look at the life of this jailer. Look at the life of this prison guard. Historians believe that this very likely could have been the same guard that lacerated the backs of Paul and Silas with a wooden rod. Hours earlier, he beats them severely. And now later, he heals the very wounds that he inflicted. This is a transformation. You don't even recognize this man anymore before Christ and after him. Former things pass away and all things are made new. The gospel is not just you getting out of hell. It's about giving you a new heart, a new life, a new perspective. The gospel still changes lives today. It's changed my life, my family's life. If you knew me and you knew my family before Christ, you simply would not believe the power of the gospel. He changes lives. Not only did it change the jailer, but it changed his family. His faith was contagious. It exuded from his life. He and his whole household were saved. And then finally, he went from being suicidal to a worshiper of the living God in just a matter of hours. He went from a moment of saying, I'm gonna take my life to know now you're worthy of it. And he went from suicidal to worship, to praise. That's the transformation that can happen in the life of a person who is born again, made new. And if the world ever needed the gospel, it's right now. If suicide was ever a problem, it's a problem now. If depression, anxiety, the world will not, social policies will not change the human heart. The world needs Jesus. He is the one, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful counselor. It's Jesus the world needs. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, click that subscribe button, share this podcast on social, or even take a screenshot from your story and tag us. We'd love to hear how the Lord is using this podcast to bless your life. You can send an email to info at visionchurch.com or you can DM us on social with a story of how God is moving in your world. Also, we'd like to thank those who invest in our ministry financially. It's because of your sacrifice that we are able to publish this every week. If you'd like to join in giving to our ministry, you can click the link in the description or visit visionchurch.com and click the Give tab. Thanks again for listening. God bless.